How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. Give you the opportunity to make sure that you're in fellowship, ready to study the word, and uh, spiritually prepared. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can be here this evening to focus on your word. We're thankful that you have revealed to us all that we need to know in order to be able to orient to reality as you have created it and as you have defined it. Father, we continue to pray for our nation. We pray for our president. We pray for those members of Congress, uh, leaders all the way down to the local level, city council, mayor, and we pray that these leaders would have wisdom and that there would be those who uh, can come to them with wisdom and then they would have the humility to listen to the truth and recognize the truth that they might be able to make decisions that continue to uh, keep us free and continue to protect uh, the citizenry of this nation and uh, from foreign enemies. And then, Father, we continue to pray for those who serve on the mission field, those who take the gospel throughout the world to so many different nations and so many different countries and those who we support, those whom we know of, those who are on our prayer list, and we pray for them that they might uh, have the resources they need to carry out their ministry. And especially uh, now as Jim Myers is flying back to the U.S., we pray for him and his time in the country uh, this summer. So, Father, we pray for this time together in your word and pray that you would use it to our edification. In Christ's name, amen. Well, it's been a week or two since we were in Romans. Last week I gave you a report on the... Uh, APAC conference, and for those of you who either weren't here on Thursday night to hear it, or those of you who were not able to listen uh, last week, I understand there was a couple of little uh, uh, glitches self-inflicted by the West Houston Bible Church media staff in the back room there uh, that caused a few little audio problems for some people. I really encourage you to listen to that, especially in light of what's going on uh, in Israel and in the Middle East today. I just cannot understand and believe how few people really pay attention to what's going on. We live in a world that is changing so rapidly, and the, and the issues are so significant, more so than any other time, I think, in the, since probably World War II, and that people need to be, be very much aware of what is going on and in communication with your uh, congressional uh, representatives because... Um, there are just a lot of decisions that are being made, and if nobody lets people know what they should do, then they don't know and they get swayed. That was one of the things I learned last year when I was in, uh, went up to D.C. for a David Barton tour of the Capitol building, and then they had a, the next day there was a uh, pastoral or a, a, a briefing from members of Congress, and every one of these guys came in. All of them were Christians, and they came in. They just said, you can't imagine the pressure we're under to compromise every single day, every minute of every hour, and we just desperately need prayer above everything else. So just keep that in mind. 
And uh, so that's a good thing to remember. So I went over that last time. Now we're back in Romans, Romans chapter 1. Since it's been a couple of weeks since I handled some of the exegesis in Romans 1, starting around verse 24, I really want to uh, just review a couple of things very rapidly. We get a conclusion in verse 24 coming out of the uh, verses 16 through 23. In verses 16 to 23, we have an analysis, especially 18 to 23, an analysis of the fact that God's revealed himself to everybody. There is not a person who at some point didn't know with a uh, perfect level of conviction that there was a God. But from that point, if they are negative, if they reject that, then it just gets suppressed, which is what Paul says. They suppress that by means of unrighteousness, and they stuff it down, stuff it down, cover it, put it down in the basement, dig three levels of sub-basements and keep digging it and putting it down there so they don't have to face it. And then things happen in life that cause the knowledge of God to just pop up to the surface like a jack-in-the-box, and there's all kinds of reactions that occur. Sometimes there are positive reactions. Sometimes there are hostile reactions. Um, But there's always a reaction because ultimately everything in life, if the Bible is true, everything, and that's a first-class condition, by the way, just want to make sure you understood that. It's absolute truth. So, in that case, when people uh, suppress the knowledge of God, they, it's awfully unnerving when all of a sudden that pops back up in their life. And we see it culturally. The more culture deteriorates as we go through the pathology of a degrading culture in Romans 1, we'll see how the more degraded a culture becomes, the more they suppress that knowledge, the more hostile they become uh, to that knowledge of God. So there are consequences, though, to the rejection of God. And in verse 24, we see the first, the first shift that occurs, that God gives them over. And God giving them over is a particular term that is used to indicate that God uh, pulls back the restraint a little bit in order that they can... Uh, continue to do what they've been doing and continue in their sinful way to see and reap the consequences. And God says, okay, that's what you want to do? Well, I'm just going to let you do it, see what happens. Part of it is done out of a uh, judgment, divine discipline, because they will reap the consequences of their sinful choices but also it is an opportunity for for them once they experience those sinful choices and those negative consequences to then perhaps uh, turn back to God. So God takes, as I pointed out, three times in this chapter, God gives a culture, individuals and a culture over to their negative volition. It's mentioned in verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28. Now, basically, what the text says is God gives them over, gives them over to uncleanness. This is a Greek preposition here, ace, which indicates the goal, the direction. He, that's that's the end game. Is they become spiritually unclean, and it's done. And then we have this phrase in the lust of their hearts. And this phrase in the lust of their hearts is a phrase that can really go one of two ways. It's not. 
Uh, it's a little ambiguous in the Greek, but the bottom line is basically uh, basically the same. One views it as expressing the circumstances, uh, the existing moral condition of the people, their character, and the other expresses this as uh, instrumental, uh, that by means of their lust, which is the driving force within the sin nature, uh, it takes them to uncleanness, which is represented as uh, spiritually unfit to have a relationship with God. Now, the word that is translated uh, uncleanness there is the Greek word akathersia. And akathersia is just the negative of cleanness, cleansing, cleanness, katharizo, all those words have to do with a person who is spiritually prepared to have a relationship with God. It occurs at salvation when we trust Christ as Savior. It occurs after salvation when we confess sin. When we sin, we become spiritually unclean. So it has a broad general meaning related to just being out of fellowship, being under the control of the sin nature. But in many passages in the New Testament, it has a more specific meaning, which is related to some sort of sexual sin or sexual immorality. Since this is the first stage of three, and in the second and third stage you get into much more specific uh, descriptions of sexual immorality, unlike many commentators, it seems like a lot of uh, Christians tend to jump to sexual sin as sort of a knee-jerk reaction. I think this is really more of a uh, statement about their spiritual unfitness and their uh, lack of spiritual cleansing. And it is the result of God give, letting them take the reins, so to speak, of the lusts of their heart. Heart refers to the inner thoughts, the core th- thoughts of their, of their soul. And the end result is that it not only has an effect mentally or spiritually, but it affects them overtly in terms of their bodies. So they dishonor their bodies. Notice the connection between the physical, the material, and the immaterial. There's this plague that we've had in Christianity ever since the influence of Neoplatonism in the early part of of the church age to somehow divorce things, that that just affects my spiritual life, not the physical, that these are somehow uh, become uh, disparate, they're, they're disconnected. But here you see there is the lust of the heart that affects physical life. They, it dishonors the body. Now they have uh, dishonored God um, back in verse uh, 21 because they, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God nor were thankful but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened because they dishonored God uh, they, uh, di- their own bodies become dishonored. That's the word here, um, the ah, temazesdai is the present middle infinitive, tamao uh, is the verb, and with the negative alpha privative in front of it, it just negates it, so it means to dishonor. So there's sort of a play on words here. They, we, are they dishonor God, God turns them over to dishonor uh, their own bodies. They have exchanged the truth of God for for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, the amen here indicates a clear pause in thinking. 
Now, I want to point something out that I did not point out when we first went through this, and that is that, that in, in verses 24 and 25, Paul describes the cause of what this first stage of degradation is. And in verse 25, it's idolatry. Because the individual substitutes something other than God for worship, it has an impact, a degrading impact on his physical life. I'm not talking about just physical health, but it impacts everything done uh, by the individual, impacts their culture, impacts them physically, and it affects everything that they uh, touch and everything that they do. And so the root cause of the problem here is, uh, is idolatry. Then we have a further uh, shift, a further degradation that occurs, uh, and that is described then in verse 26. This goes into the second level. So for this reason, what reason? Because of the idolatry rather than turning from the idolatry in the stage, first stage of divine judgment, they revel in that idolatry. Recently I've been working on uh, going back and reviewing my notes in the book of Judges. And it's so fascinating how you have at the beginning of Judges, Joshua dies, you have the conquest generation that is the older generation at that point, and they have uh, led the nation in a victorious conquest of the land. They went in and they conquered the major uh, areas of opposition. They defeated Jericho, Ai. They defeated a coalition of kings in the north and a coalition of kings in the south, which gains all, your, all of the major areas under Israelite control. Then at that time, you have the apportionment of the land at the end of, at the end of Joshua. And, it, and then at the beginning of Judges, Joshua dies. And there's about a 10-year period there, 10 to 15-year period there, where that conquest generation dies off. And as they die off, the next generation comes on board and they reject everything of their parents. And you see this, this deterioration that takes place in the first chapter of Judges. As they begin, uh, the writer of Judges presents the, their conquest or the mopping up operations uh, that were to occur first in Judah and then moving north and moving through various tribes. Judah is victorious. They trust God, but there are hints and undertones of ways in which they're impacted by the pagan culture and begin to uh, do things more like the Canaanites did than what the Mosaic Law said. And then by the time you get halfway through the, the mopping up operation, uh, the uh, various tribes are just sitting down and living together and coexisting with the Canaanites until you get to the last tribe, which is Dan, and they get defeated. They can't conquer their land. They get defeated, and they have to give up territory, and they're in a state of defeat. And all of this is because, as uh, the Lord points out in the second chapter, they disobeyed God and turned to the Baals and the Ashtoreth. So there is idolatry that is at the very core, and that idolatry doesn't have to be a concrete idolatry where you're worshiping an image made of stone or wood or metal. 
But it can be an idol of the mind. It can be you can be worshiping your own uh, prowess, your own self, your own ego, your own abilities. You can be worshiping money. You can be worshiping any of the aspects of creation that are the focal points of the lusts of your sin nature. So the result of that if is if you continue to wallow in that and, and uh, not wake up like the prodigal son did and decide, well, wait a minute, how did I get down here in the pig pen? If you don't wake up and turn back, then God is going to turn you over, turn the culture over to the next stage. And this is verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to vile uh, passions, which is just another way of talking about giving them up to degrading emotions and lust patterns. For even their women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. And the way Paul uses this word for uh, that we have here for nature, which is the word uh, the word thusis, uh, Paul's typical use of that is to express God's intention in creation. So they give up, God gives them over to these degrading passions, and the women exchange a natural use for what is against nature, and then the men do the same thing. Now, in the first stage, you have idolatry, and in the first stage that we looked at, you see uh, the restraint is removed to a certain degree from the lust patterns. This is the second stage. The second stage, we see the introduction of uh, homosexuality among first women and then men. And I pointed out last time, I think there's a reason Paul deals with the women first and then the men, and it is not because he is a misogynist and he's dumping on women. It's because the men are the failures. And this is something that is seen even in the book of Judges a number of times, that as the men fail, then it has consequences among the women and then it comes back on the men. So it creates a, a negative cyclical pattern. What's interesting here in verse 26 and 27 is that Paul doesn't use the more familiar koine terms for male and female. He uses the terms that are used in the Septuagint for translating male and female in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And so he uses the word uh, thaleth for the female and arsane for male. Now, what's interesting is he gets into the dealing with homosexuality. The Greek word for homosexuality wasn't built off the uh, onair, which is the koine word for male. It's built off of the more antiquated term uh, arsane for male, and it's arsenokoietis. And, of course, you probably understand what koietis is, and arsenic relates to the male. So this is the term for uh, homosexuality, pederasty, and uh, sodomy. So I think there's a reason that Paul, that's another reason Paul used these older terms is because they had other negative uh, uh, consequences in terms of their use in the compound words for homosexuality. What we see is the role of arrogant skills, just a review, self-absorption leading to self-indulgence, self-indulgence leading to self-justification, self-justification leading to self-deception, and self-deception leading to self-deification. And the cycle just continues and goes deeper and deeper and deeper as we get so mired in our own self-justification and self-deception, you can no longer see light. You're, somebody's just walking 
in darkness. Now, as I reached that point the last time, I began to talk about how it's interesting that the, the second stage that we go to in uh, societal and individual corruption and degradation has to do with a complete breakdown of gender roles, a complete breakdown of gender roles and sexual identity. And this is something that we have witnessed in the history, uh, contemporary history of the United States since World War II. It's not that uh, there have not always been those who have homosexual inclinations. That can be a trend of the sin nature, uh, just like any other trend. It's a sin just like any other sin, except it has damaging consequences in relation to uh, the second and the third divine institutions, marriage and family, in the same way, but I think in an even greater way than in uh, in adultery. We all know that when there is a uh, unfaithful husband and he has an affair with uh, some younger woman, that often that still produces offspring. And you can think of a couple of recent examples in the news, uh, as I can. But if it's homosexual, there's no offspring. And so it starts to break down the uh, starts to break down the generational propagation. And remember the prime mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve in the garden was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so homosexuality is much more of a, of a direct assault on that mandate, which has never been rescinded despite all of the, uh, all of the chicken littles that run around saying that we're overpopulating the earth. Uh, that hasn't happened and it's not going to happen and the earth's population will be much greater than it is today uh, when the Lord comes back during the millennial kingdom. But of course they scoff at us whenever we talk about something like that. But what we see here in, in Romans 1 is the assault that occurs on the divine institutions. What happens initially with rejection of God and negative volition is, uh, is the, uh, perversion of the first divine institution, which is individual responsibility. And then we get into its impact on marriage and then its impact on family. So I want to give you just a brief review on the divine institutions before we go any further. First of all, let's have a definition. The term divine institution has been used by Christians to speak of absolute social structures that were embedded by God uh, into, the, into the human race. There, it's an institution not in the sense that, let's say, Friday night high school football is an institution in the state of Texas. It is an, it is, that, that, that's just something that is a, a, a common cultural trapping, so to speak. That is something that we enjoy doing. But... Uh, an institution in this sense is something that is absolute. It is a transcendental reality that applies equally to all human beings who were descendants from Adam because Adam is the designated head of the race. He's created first. The mandates are given to Adam first, and then God takes uh, the woman from his side and showing that she get, has her origin from the, the male. She is not created separately. So there is a, an organic unity in the human race. So in the, the um, divine institutions, therefore, are these social structures that are embedded within creation 
for the entire human race, for believers and unbelievers alike. Somebody asked me the other day if I would uh, perform a wedding for a believer and an unbeliever. I would not do that. Uh, what about a, two unbelievers? Sure, divine institution of marriage is, equally applies to unbelievers as it does to believers. Uh, it may not be a wise use of my time, but it's not a spiritual issue, whereas I think believer to unbeliever uh, is a spiritual issue. So the divine institutions apply to everyone, every culture, African, Asian, European. These are embedded. How it may manifest itself may be a little different, but the basic uh, realities are there. Without them, society breaks down. There has never been a successful matriarchal culture, despite what the radical feminists have tried to, uh, tried to promote over the last 100 or 150 years, every matriarchal society goes into degeneration, and it doesn't work. Um, so the divine institutions are absolute social, social, social structures embedded by God in the very creation of the human race. Now, the way we structure them is a little different, but you can trace discussions on each of these institutions back into the uh, early Middle Ages and the late period of the early church. The, the organization, systematization of this took uh, a lot was done, especially on uh, divine institution number four, human government, by the uh, Puritans in the 17th century, and others ha other time periods have seen developments in other areas. So um, these Divine institutions are not something that were that that were developed by man. They're not something that we say, "Oh, we have a situation here. Let's uh, we're starting to get a lot of people, making a lot of babies. Let's uh, let's have let's have marriage." Uh, marriage was instituted to be a framework within which uh, children would be reared, and they were to be reared and taught by the parents so that values could be passed on uh, passed on generationally. Now, all of this has its ultimate roots in understanding the first divine institution, which I call individual responsibility. Now, whenever you're responsible for something, you're responsible to someone. And when God gave mandates to Adam in the garden, who, to whom was he responsible? He's responsible to God. Ultimately, every individual is responsible to God for the revelation that they've been given. And this is what Paul is talking about in uh, Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 20 and 21. Every individual human being is responsible for how they respond to the knowledge of God that is evident in creation and has, God has made evident uh, within them. So that's the first divine institution. Um, it's built on the fact that man was created in the image of God to reflect God to creation. Genesis 1, and 27 states, Then God said, Let us, indicating a plurality in the Godhead, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So that idea for dominion is the idea of rule. It's the idea that man as the authority over all creation 
Man is distinct from the rest of creation. This was one of the pernicious errors in Darwinism, is that man was treated as an animal like every other animal. You're just further up the chain of being. But man is absolutely distinct from everything else. He is because he is created in the image of God, and he is to rule. That means he has the authority to determine how resources are utilized and allocated. Now, in sin, he's going to mess that up. But the position of authority has not been removed from man. Uh, It will not be fulfilled in its perfection until the Son of Man returns, the Lord Jesus Christ, in perfection in order to rule and reign over the kingdom. So Genesis 1, 26 and 27 establishes that foundation. And then in verse 27, God, God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them so that there is a, a, a unity, an equality of being between men and women, males and females. They are not uh, inherently, one is not inherently superior to the other in terms of their possession of the image of God. But as I pointed out, they have different roles, different abilities, different capabilities, and it is not the uh, too often what happens because of sin is somebody who's a team player wants the uh, covets the other person's position. And I use the analogy from football that you have uh, uh, you have certain receivers or certain people on the team who. Uh, cannot receive a pass or a lateral. It, it's not their job. Tackles and guards and centers are not designated receivers. They can't receive uh, a pass or lateral um, uh, in playing football. But you don't see them crying, crying and whining uh, because they can't uh, run for a for a touchdown pass. That's not their job. Their job is significant, and it is equally important in the team. But they, there are certain things they are just restricted uh, from doing. The same thing happens in, uh, in the role relationships of men and women. Uh, men are prohibited from having babies. They physically can't, but now that we are so technologically advanced, it won't be long before we start having uh, men have babies because that's the trajectory that occurs when a culture gets so confused about gender and role relationships. Now, men, women want to wear the pants and men want to wear the skirts, and that's exactly what Paul's describing in Genesis chapter, I mean, in, in uh, Romans chapter 1 as part of God's judgment upon a culture. So man's created in, in the image of God uh, the, the, as, as male and female, uh, so the human race, all human beings, have the that image in them. Now, as Paul describes in verse 25, they, in negative volition, the first divine institution is utilized individual responsibility. It's utilized irresponsibly. God is rejected. And so this has negative and damning uh, consequences upon the, uh, upon the woman. And especially, and I want you to, I didn't put this up on the screen, I want you to look with me, turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, turn back, let's go to Genesis 2 first. 
Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2 confuses some people because there's a lot of detail there, and they go, oh, how did all that happen in 24 hours? God, There must be a conf- conflict between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Well, there's no conflict if you properly understand what is going on here. Um, for example, when uh, we're told that after God had created uh, Adam and breathed life into his nostrils before he created uh, created the woman. He um, took the man, put him in verse 15, took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep it, job responsibility. That's part of individual responsibility. It's a foundation for understanding labor and productivity. So there is there is work in the sense of responsibility, but not in the sense of toil. Toil comes only after their sin. But this isn't toil. This is responsible labor. Verse 16, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So there are commands, there's responsibility, and there are negative consequences for disobedience. And then in verse thirteen, uh, verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that a man should be alone. And the word that is used there for man is male. It is not man, a word that could be translated uh, mankind. Uh, he's talking about males. And I think there's something in the male psyche, this is just my observation, that men don't do as well alone as women do uh, alone. That doesn't mean that women that you do better, uh, that you don't get lonely. I'm not making that that point, but I think that women generally handle it better uh, than men do. I don't know how much of that is cultural. I know that there are a lot of men who, if they don't have a woman around, they they don't know how to wash clothes, they don't know how to wash dishes, they don't know how to grocery shop or or take care of any domestic functions at all. Uh, That's probably more cultural. But I think this is designed this way so that the males will be seeking a woman in order to pair up. Uh, so it's not good for the man to be alone. And God says, I will make a helper for him, an Aetzer. And we've talked about this in the past, that the Aetzer is only used of God other than women. So it's a very honorable position to be a helper. And so then God, uh, following that, God made every beast of the field. And the word there for field has to do, these are more domestic animals. These aren't the broader uh, array of species that populate the planet. These were those that are more oriented to the domestication. And so when uh, Adam begins to name them, God isn't saying go out and name 15,000 uh, genuses uh, or, uh, or families. He's saying start here with the domestic genus that's in the garden. And so he brought them to Adam to see what Adam would call them, and whatever Adam called them, that was its name. And so um, Adam begins to recognize that for every male there's a female, but there's no counterpart. So see, God is teaching him to recognize that he's missing something. And so then he, verse 21 and 22, he causes a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and from his, he takes out a rib, and from the rib God forms of the woman. So there's this organic unity between the male and the female. And then when we get to verse 24, it's clear this is an editorial application. Remember, Moses is writing this 
to the Israelites in on the plains of Moab. And after he gets through describing certain events, he then makes a point of application to them in 1440 B.C. And he says, or 1420 or whenever it was between the Exodus and, and the conquest, he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Again, it's the male there, not the female. The male leaves fam- his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and they shall become a one flesh. It is an application from the doctrine that has just been developed from the historical uh, creation order. So once again, I'm making the point, Moses teaches the order of creation, male, then female, and then Moses says, here is one application. Men leave their family to join with their wife to start a new family. And so we move from marriage to family, and they are then going to be given the mandate to multiply and fill the earth, uh, which was given earlier in, summer, in the summary in Genesis 1. Now, Genesis 3. Genesis 3.15, or 3.16, in addressing the woman in terms of the consequence of the sin, God says, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. The point is not that there wouldn't have been pain Physical pain, physical pain is just a function of, of sense. And, and this is a really interesting conversation to have and to talk through. But if you don't have pain, you can't feel things. So the, there, there's a certain negativeness to pain that might have been normal in the garden as sort of a warning. Adam would still have burned his flesh if he had put it in a fire. So there would have been the need for pain as a warning that you're doing something wrong, but what's happening, but, but not the kind of pain that comes in a post-fall world. So the woman would have had a measure of discomfort, let's say, in giving birth, but now having had the command to be, uh, to multiply and fill the earth, that command is going to be tarnished. It's going to be hindered. It's going to become difficult because now there's going to be uh, labor involved uh, in the process of childbirth. And then there's the final statement in verse 16, your desire shall be for your husband. And that word is a word that has a very negative connotation. It's a desire for control, not a desire, um, not a desire, not a passionate desire or a lustful desire. It's a desire for control. But he shall rule over you, which is the idea of, He's going to want control also. So this is the beginning of the uh, war of the sexes, that the woman wants to wear the pants and the man doesn't want to give up authority, and so there's going to be a conflict, and it can only be resolved by following the precepts of Ephesians chapter 5. So I kind of brought us to that point last time, taking a little more time on on some of this than I uh, intended. And then I pointed out a couple of examples of things that had come across my desk just that day in relation to uh, how gender confusion and sexual role confusion impacts even in the church. I had one survey that was sent to a pastor friend uh, that uh, obviously came from a perspective that more women should be involved in leadership of a local church and on the pastoral team. 
And then I had another example that was related to a situation that occurred uh, just that day in, for me. Uh, I've been, I had been asked to write an article for a Bible dictionary uh, that was going to be published electronically by Logos, which has got the arguably the largest uh, electronic com- software library out there, theological library. And I read through their form, uh, their style sheet, and they had a statement in there that uh, uh, prohibited gender-specific language. So I read that in the last last lesson. That was, what, two or three weeks ago. Well, after that, I needed to give you the rest of the story because I, when I wrote back to the editorial assistant for that project and uh, expressed in detail my theological reasons as to why I would, could not go along with that uh, style sheet because it, it violated clear principles in Scripture that there were gender distinctions, and you can't just overlook that in translation because modern man uh, wants to have uh, interchangeability of, of uh, gender and sexual roles. And so I said, I will copy this to Bob Pritchett, who is the president and founder of Logos. Bob's just one of those geniuses. He's, he, when he was 14, he wrote the original Microsoft Works program. If you've been around for a while, that was about 1986 or 87. And um, later on, he started developing Logos on Microsoft's computers, which employees could do. Uh, he took it to uh, Bill Gates. Uh, Bill Gates signed off and said, I'm not interested and so uh, uh, Bob took it and made it a, made it a business. But uh, it was about four days before I got a reply from Bob, and he wrote, Dr. Dean, I would like to apologize for the way you were treated in the exchanges below, that's the other emails, and for my lack of attention to the style guideline for our dictionary project. I'm so glad you copied me on your response. I'm sorry it took so long to follow up. I wanted to dig into the issue internally, with the people involved. That's a good way, when you have a problem like that, as the, as the person in charge, you need to make sure you get all your facts internally from your people and talk to them and see what's going on. So he did a great job there. He said, I do have a lot of confidence in the team that's managing the uh, Bible Dictionary Project, but this is their and our company's first time with a project of this scope and importance. They pulled together the style guidelines with reference to the SBL. That's the Society for Biblical Literature Style Guide. SBL is the big tent. Everybody who writes about the Bible, believer, unbeliever, pagan, non-pagan, they can all be members of SBL. So they they have really, uh, as you can imagine, uh, they have a style guideline that pretty much uh, mirrors that of... of, uh, whatever the latest uh, uh, guidelines are in the culture at large. Said so they, they, uh, they developed it with reference to the SBL style guide and many others used for academic projects, including guidelines from ETS and some other evangelical reference publishers. Of course, a lot of them have also been bought up. In the old days when you had Zondervan and Erdman, Moody is still good and independent, uh, you also had a number of others. They've all been bought up by Harper and Rowe and the big secular publishing houses, and they've really changed in the last uh, 20 years so that they're, it's all about the bottom dollar, and a lot of the older companies that were founded to promote really sound theology are publishing a lot of really strange things today. But he goes on to say... Uh, 
While our guidelines pulled back some from SBL's even more, in my opinion, politically correct stance, I think they still go too far. We're definitely removing the, quote, language regarded as patriarchal sentence. I welcome your ideas on wording that addresses the current trends in academic writing without any compromise on biblical truth. I appreciate your long and enthusiastic support of Lagos, and we very much value your contribution to the Lexham uh, Bible Dictionary. If you will consent to continue with your articles, I will make sure they are copy edited with care and that you have a chance to review any gender language edits proposed, though I don't imagine there will be any. Uh, he Then he mentioned the young lady who was uh, <clears throat> at the focal point of this uh, conflict and said she has a difficult and stressful job coordinating hundreds of outside contributors, but that's no excuse for the abrupt email you received. We've discussed this thoroughly, and I've explained, I would have liked to have heard that conversation, I've explained that any style guide is simply that, a guide to help facilitate consistency of style in the publication. Interpretation, analysis, and writing are the proper work of our contributors, chosen for their superior expertise, and our role is to assist, not to correct them. Again, please accept my apologies, and I expect to see your, uh, look forward to your contributions to the Bible Dictionary. So I felt like that was a very gracious uh, letter, showed a lot of humility, as well as integrity in terms of their general view of the Scripture. I've always been impressed with Lagos and the people there is having a high view of Scripture and wanting to maintain that scriptural integrity. And so I felt like after uh, mentioning the other emails the last time, I needed to at least uh, get that out so that everybody heard the rest of the story. But that's been a problem ever since Zonovan came out with this, what they called today's new international version back around 2000, 2001, which opted for gender-inclusive language uh, all the way through it. It created a huge debate among uh, among conservatives, and these issues still are, are still resonating. So there are, there are problems there. Now, I'm pointing out we have the first problem here with divine institution number one in terms of not being responsible towards God and rejecting his existence at God consciousness. The second result that we see from this impacts marriage. Uh, marriage is defined biblically as between one man and one woman. Uh, marriage came under assault almost instantly by Satan in the guise of a serpent began to divide and conquer, separate the woman from the man, and to get her away from the man so that he could entice her into disobedience and then use her to uh, to tempt the man into disobedience, knowing that it was the male's decision that was the critical factor. It didn't affect anybody but Eve when she disobeyed. But, it, but Adam's decision caused the fall of the human race. So... As I said, there were consequences related to that when uh, uh, God spelled out the consequences to spiritual death upon the woman as well as consequences to the man. The man was uh, is said to uh, have to deal with a, a cursed ground before he was to tend and keep the garden. Now God tells him the ground is judged for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. See, labor now becomes toil, and, but there's opposition Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, especially when there's a heavy drought like we have in Texas right now. Grass doesn't grow, thorns and thistles and cactus do grow. 
And so it just makes it more difficult. We're experiencing the reality of a fallen world. So God then says, by the sweat of your, of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. The first mention of physical death. Okay, having set that up, we see this that there is an assault on marriage, on male and female roles within marriage, and immediately marriage comes under attack. And by the end of chapter 4, you have the introduction of polygamy. Polygamy is every now and then you're going to get in conversation with somebody, and they're going to say, well, the Bible, God permitted polygamy in the Old Testament. He may have permitted it, but he never affirmed it. He never validated it. Uh, polygamy is always presented in a negative light in the Old Testament, and it was not God's original intention. And uh, even though uh, Abraham had uh, Sarah, he did not have, he was not polygamous. Uh, you have Jacob who married both Rachel and Leah and then had two concubines. Concubines had a different status than a wife. It's not polygamy. Later on, you had uh, a few others who were polygamous, but it's not really until you get to, to David and the desire to be a king and to act like a king with all the pomp and circumstance of the other uh, ancient Near Eastern uh, potentates, and they all had a lot of wives, and that's how you sealed the treaty was you married uh, uh, the daughter or, or a female relation of the uh, other country's king, and so then David multiplies wives, Solomon does, and it just leads to trouble. It's never presented in a positive light, but that began uh, before, uh, before the flood. The other problem is the development of homosexuality, and that is one of many sins against marriage, and it attacks the stability of marriage and the possibility of a of, of propagation of the, of the species. Now, if you get a culture going to a certain extent of homosexuality, then that culture is just going to die off, and those human beings are not going to propagate, which would make the, some environmentalists quite happy, I'm sure, since human beings are the enemy of the environment. Now, the other thing that just happens is, is has to do with culture and has to do with the sin nature, and I want to go through this pretty rapidly because I really didn't want to take a lot of time with it, but more than what the clock says I have. I want you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. One of the problems we, we have, and by we I mean generally Christians, conservative Christianity has had for centuries, is that more women are interested in spiritual things than men. And because, and if you look at the audience, we have more women here than men. And because of that, some men get the idea that church is for women. I remember when I was a young pastor in my first church, and um, there was a, uh, a woman whose husband never came to church, didn't care. And one day her, she was trying to get her seven or eight-year-old son to church, and he said, why do I have to go? Church is for women. It's not for men. He understood the lesson. He understood the, that he had learned his lesson well from the failure of American, uh, American males. Now, when we get into this issue of gender distinctions and role distinctions, an important chapter is 1 Timothy chapter 2. At the beginning, 
Timothy's addressing behavior within a church. What he's talking about is within a local congregation. All of the context here is in chapter 3, he's going to talk about leadership in a local church. Here he's talking about various priorities and practices within a local church. First, it's prayer. I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority. Remember, he's writing this when uh, Nero's in power, so it doesn't have anything to do with the inherent goodness or evil of the, uh, of the governing authority. We're to pray for all who are in authority. For what reason? That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life, in all godliness and reverence. We just want to be left alone by the government so we can witness to people and grow spiritually. But that means that sometimes pastors in this country from the time of the war for independence at different times have recognized that if pastors don't lead their congregations to wake up politically, then in the next five or ten years it won't matter because we will lose the freedoms we have. So there are times when you have to set away, set aside normal operating procedure as a pastor and as a leader to wake people up that you have to get involved politically or your freedoms will be gone within another decade. And if you don't wake up and if pastors don't wake up and quit thinking that, that all you have to do is pray about it, then we're going to lose those freedoms. You can sit around all day long and pray that, uh, that the grass is going to get cut and God has answered the prayer. There's a full can of gas in the garage and a lawnmower. But you have to go out there and start it and cut the grass. And we can pray all day long that something will change in terms of the government. But if you don't let your representatives know what the issues are and what you think of them, so few people really let, any, let anybody know that what happens is you'll lose those freedoms because... You, you haven't done what you should do as a responsible member and citizen of this country. It doesn't have anything to do with you being a Christian. It has to do with you being a responsible citizen under the law of the Constitution. So we have responsibilities. We pray, but we also, in this country, we're not living in the Roman Empire. We're not living in the Greek Empire. We're not living in the British Empire. We're living in a country where the government is responsive, to the people. It is a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, and we need to be involved. Okay, end of advertisement. So we're to pray. Now, when thanks is made for all men, Paul uses the word anthropos. Anthropos, where we get our word anthropology. And anthropos can mean male, and it can just be more generic for all humanity which is mankind because all of the human race came from Adam, came from a man. The unity of the human race is because it came from a man. didn't pop up first with a, uh, Jane out in the middle of the uh, Kenyan desert somewhere. Now, we're to pray for kings, all who are in authority as well. We're to pray for all men, that is, all mankind. Why? For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men. Again, it's the plural of anthropos, and here it could be translated all mankind, not just men, women too, boys and girls. So he desires all mankind, all humanity to be saved. Now, I don't have a problem translating that humanity. I resist it if somebody's a little reactive because they think it's sexist. I think that's silly. Um, 
who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man. And again, we have the word anthropos in both places here. The, the God and men, and there is, the first men is not mankind, male, it's humanity. But the second use of anthropos is the man, both hum, emphasizing humanity and male, Christ Jesus. So anthropos is a great word to use here. Then, starting in verse 8, Paul starts talking about the roles of males and females. He says, I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. Now, the word for holy is the word hosios, which has to do with uh, holy, devout, pious. It has to do with the fact that you're in fellowship, basically. That's, that's what it means, just to get cut past everything. Uh, you're in fellowship. But the word for men is unair. It's not anthropos anymore. It's not mankind. It's males. It, it, it's a real indictment of any local church whenever there's prayer meeting and there's more women than men, which is typical in the U.S., typical in most places. The command is to the men to pray everywhere. That doesn't mean you're left out, ladies, but the point is men have to act like men. That's what it means to be a biblical man. Therefore, the males pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also, now the women get addressed, and the women here shifts to the term gune, which is the female. So we've now separated out from anthropos to male and female. The men are to pray the women are to dress in a non-distracting manner. That's the focal point of verse 9. Uh, like manner, the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety, moderation, etc. And then Paul says in verse 10, which is proper for women, gune, professing godliness with good works. And then in verse 11, he gives a command. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And immediately all the feminists just kind of tighten up there's Paul being misogynist again. No, he understands there is a role distinction between males and females. The, let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. So he's talking to women, the females. Let the females learn in silence. The word there is a present active imperative indicating this is to be a standard operating procedure is that the women are to learn in silence. Paul said the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. doesn't mean you can't ask questions, but it does mean that the authority is in the male. Spiritual leadership is in the male. Now, that's not supposed to be exercised in a tyrannical manner either, men. So they're to learn in silence. Uh, by means of silence, it's hard to listen and learn when you're talking or a asking a question every two minutes. Uh, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And the word there is the same word used in relation to husbands uh, or wives being submitted to their husbands, hupotasso. Here it's the noun, hupotage. It means a recognition of authority. And then Paul says, and I do not permit a woman, a gune again, uh, to do two things, to teach or to have authority. I remember when Elizabeth Elliot, whose claim to fame was that she was the widow of Jim Elliot when she was very young in her 20s, uh, they were going as missionaries down in Columbia to the Alka Indians, 
and Jim Elliott and four other uh, young American missionaries were massacred by the Alka Indians. It's a fabulous story. But that was her basic claim to fame. Fast forward 20 years, and she's written, she'd written a number of books uh, over that time, and she was the first woman who ever spoke from the pulpit at the chapel at Dallas Theological Seminary. And she said, the Bible says that uh, women um, are not to teach and have authority over men. Did you catch that? She said, women are not to teach and have authority over men. Is that what that says? Tommy Ice and I were grinding our teeth on the front row. We just couldn't believe it. Got up there. She said, I'm, I can teach because I'm under the authority of all these faculty members that are up here on the stand. And she misquoted the passage. Uh, Paul said, I don't let women teach men. I don't let women, that let men have authority over, I mean, I don't let women have authority over men. Two separate things. In fact, in the Greek text, Paul starts off to teach men, I do not allow a woman or to have authority over men. He separates those two infinitives as far as he can to make sure you understand that he's talking about two different things. He's not talking about teaching with abusive authority, which is how some moderns uh, try to make that. He says, I don't, and the context here is a local church. It's not first grade down at the elementary school. It's not teaching uh, uh, on human resources or whatever it might be down at uh, whatever uh, the corporation is. It's talking about teaching the Word of God within the congregation. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over man, but again, to be silent. So we have these two words, didasco, which is normally used in the uh, pastorals for teaching the Word of God in a congregational setting, and authentico to have authority over. And then, again, the word for man is a male. So it's very clear what he says. And then he explains it. How does he explain it? He goes back to creation. He doesn't say, well, this is how we do it in Greece. He doesn't say, this is how the Orthodox Jews do it. He says, we've got to go back, and there, there was significance to the order that God did things in Genesis 2 before there was sin. He, Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So there is a consequence to, there, there's an authority structure before the fall, and there are consequences to uh, Eve's deception. And then he says, nevertheless, she shall be saved in childbearing. Now, there's a lot of controversy over just what does that mean. The word therefore saved doesn't mean justification salvation. It's deliverance. What was the original mandate back there in Genesis 1? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So what this is talking about is that, the, generally speaking, the role of the woman is to be play that role in the propagation of the species for having the children. And so that's what he, he talks about here. But it's not just to have babies. You can't say, well, Paul just wanted barefoot and pregnant all the time. That's how some people read that. You've got to pay attention to the if clause. The if clause is what's important. Whether or not they have children, the issue is whether they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. That's repeated again and again throughout the Scripture. That's the issue. But in terms of role, the male is the spiritual leader and head of, uh, of the home, and it is the woman who is the one who has the children and fulfills that responsibility given to the men. 
But what happens when, after the fall and with negative volition, is that the culture gets all screwed up. They they fail to understand what leadership is because they no, under, no longer understand the creator-creature distinction. They fail to understand role relationships within a marriage. They fail to understand gender and role distinctions within a culture, and they fail to understand gender and role distinctions in sexuality. And the result is the further they get away from God, the more the culture will implode over those very issues, and we're witnessing that today. But I have some good news for you on that front. Everybody else, every other country in the world, is imploding faster than we are. And that's true. Unless, of course, you're in a Muslim country. And then they're just lopping your head off. But they don't talk about what they do on Thursday nights. Anyway, let's uh, bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at... um, at these various issues and to see that there are really serious physical consequences to spiritual decisions. When we make bad spiritual decisions, then there are consequences in, throughout the culture, consequences in relationship, consequences in personal identity, consequences in uh, sexual and gender roles. And, Father, this can only be reversed by reversing the root cause, which is positive volition to you. Once that is dealt with and there is a right relationship with you, then any problem can be solved. And your grace is greater than any problem problem we face. And there are all manners of ministries uh, that have tremendous success in resolving all kinds of problems that are the result of this kind of negative volition. And just to show that the world says it's, it's, uh, it's just nature, but we understand as believers that it has to do with volition, and that that can be reversed. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things studied tonight and how this applies in our personal lives as well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.